Today, I'd like to jump into a topic once again that I really enjoy talking about. This uh, this conversation is going to basically springboard off of a couple of questions that have come in uh, into our uh, email and also our comments section, and it has to do with Israel. Again, a topic I love to talk about, and I think it's important for us to gain some clarity in regard to some of the issues that are raised uh, in these questions. They're good ones, and I like the way that they're asked. Um, one of these comes from Seamus, and another part will come from Taylor. I'm going to go ahead and, and kind of just go ahead and read it, although I might skim a little bit based on just the length of it. Uh, but here we go. A topic I would like you to flesh out is around Israel. We judge a lot about the days we live in based around prophecy being fulfilled, like the red heifers in Israel, uh, the potential for a third temple. How are we so convinced that the current nation state of Israel are the children of Israel? I can understand how Christians jumped on board, believing that Bible prophecy was being fulfilled before their eyes in 1948, but any prophecy I see speaks of Jesus restoring Israel from the four corners when he returns. And this, of course, is from Matthew 24. It's a good point. Um, I do see, or I'm sorry, uh, I can't see how people can extract two returns of Israel, firstly in unbelief and then in belief. I do see that the same globalists who are steering the world in the direction it is heading also created the current state of Israel in 1948. My reasons for questioning this is it could be used to mislead many Christians as to the exact time we live in, and that is a fair concern. I'm glad you raised that. Uh, we can see very specific efforts being made to fulfill prophecy and also the almost too obvious World Economic Forum uh, and the use of 666 everywhere. Maybe it's on purpose. Um, uh, and then he goes on to speak about how uh, much of what we see today could be used potentially by Satan as a counterfeit to mislead people. These are fair concerns and good questions. Uh, I'll sort of uh, dovetail it here with uh, with a point that comes up from Taylor, uh, she says, uh, I'm sorry, I think, I think Taylor, uh, forgive me if, uh, if you're male or female there, um, but mentions a, uh, a teacher who has some interpretations of Daniel 9.27 and a few other areas of scripture that are a little puzzling. I'm most interested in what your thoughts would be about him saying that the church has inserted Israel into Daniel 9.27. Um, uh, all right. And then he's got other views on like the restrainer and those kinds of things. So let me keep the conversation, particularly on Israel here, uh, um, to, uh, to dive in. Now, I, I would like to go ahead and, um, and answer the last part of that first, and then kind of go back to some of the stuff that Seamus mentioned. Um, uh, the idea of Daniel 927 and the church having inserted Israel into Daniel 9.27. Now, I did listen to the video uh, that uh, uh, Taylor sent a um, a, uh, a link to. And, and again, I'm sorry if I'm assuming you're male or female there. I, I apologize for that. But um, I know you're one or the other. Don't get me wrong. But got to clarify that nowadays. But anyway, so um, here's, here's why um, Israel is not inserted by the church into Daniel 9.27, but why the passage itself uh, is clearly intended to be seen as revolving around Israel. And it starts in uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, where uh, the angel comes and gives Daniel this prophecy. It's called Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy. And the weeks that are referred to here <coughs> speak of 77-year periods of time. So a seven-year period of time times 70. So 490 years are in view. Um, now, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. By the way, again, as always, make sure you got your Bible ready to go. And we're in Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse 24. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city 
to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, or sixty-nine in total. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, or after that second part of this sixty-nine-week period, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Now, this idea of the abomination of desolation is the same thing that Jesus speaks about in uh, Matthew 24, uh, verse 15. Uh, the, this idea is mentioned uh, again by Daniel uh, before the end of the book. But here we go, looking at the passage, and why is it that we see Israel in this passage, and in particular in, in verse 27 of this prophecy? Now, in verse 24, it starts by telling us who is the focus. Seventy weeks, or 490 years, are determined for your people and your holy city. He's talking to Daniel. Daniel is a Jew. Daniel's holy city is Jerusalem. So who's in view? The Jews and Jerusalem. Israel. And so this prophecy that is then given, the 70-week prophecy, then continues through verse 27. We know it continues through verse 27 because in verse 27, it connects itself to the previous two verses by saying, then he shall confirm a covenant with the many for one week. And so the idea that this is all one prophecy uh, is clear, uh, grammatically, uh, textually, all that kind of thing. And so now the point is raised that uh, in verse 27, it says, a covenant is made with the many for one week. Now, there are those that teach that Israel is the only country in view during this period of time. But it would appear that either one of two explanations of the many, as it's uh, as is uh, told to Daniel, uh, can be explained. One is that it speaks uh, that, that the many is intended to refer to the people of Israel, wherever they may be. Um, however, another explanation, and one that makes good sense, is that he makes a covenant not only with Israel, but he makes a covenant with lots of nations. However, there is something very Israel-centric about this idea, because as it goes on after the mention of the covenant with many for one week, it mentions right there that in the middle of the week, in the middle of that final week, that final seven-year period of time, there is mention of him bringing an end to sacrifice and offering. And again, mention of the wing of abominations is there. Uh, So the sacrifices and the offerings are things that would take place in the temple that belongs to Israel. This one who makes a covenant, and whether it's just with the many of Israel or the many of of a number of different nations, uh, I would argue that a legitimate case can be made that this covenant would likely include not only Israel, but also the surrounding Arab nations as well. It may very well be that this covenant uh, as is generally at least surmised, will have something to do with the rebuilding of the temple that he will stop the offerings in in the middle of that last final seven-year period of time. In order to build a temple in that area, it is very likely that some kind of an agreement would likely need to be uh, entered into with the nations around Israel, especially because the temple would stand on the Temple Mount. 
Well, the Dome of the Rock is standing right in that same area. And so some kind of an agreement, uh, likely in connection with what John sees in the book of Revelation, where he's told to mark out an area outside the Temple Mount area that is given over to the nations or the Gentiles. Um, this all likely has something to do with this covenant that is signed in verse 27. So I don't think that saying the many negates it being focused on Israel. I think the rest of the context of the entire, literally the entire prophecy tells us it has to do with Israel. The mention of the many just may imply, and I say may because we don't know for sure, although I do think it's reasonable and I would tend to lean this way, that the covenant will have something to do not only with Israel, but some of the nations surrounding her. Um, very likely, at the very least, having to do with the Arab nations, uh, the Muslim nations in particular, uh, around Israel. Now, um, so in terms of, uh, so that that speaks to the last part of that whole thing. Now I'd kind of like to make my way through the first part of, of these questions. This now uh, being from Seamus there, we just tackled the one from Taylor. Uh, hopefully that was helpful. Um, um, uh, but let me look at the one here now again from Seamus. Um, uh the idea of the uh, of looking at prophecy as being fulfilled because we're seeing things like the emergence of a red heifer. Uh, again, I think this is the tenth one that they've they've had since um, uh, since the first temple period. Um, there's also mention of the potential for a third temple. Um, to speak to that, um, when we say potential, um, there is not a third temple currently, but I would say that the idea that there will be a third temple is a certainty. Uh, I don't in any way doubt for a second that there will be a third temple that is built on the Temple Mount, a place where the, uh, where Israel will gather to worship. Um, as it turns out, the plans for this temple that are already uh, drawn up and, and a lot of work is being done to prepare for it. Um, this temple, from Israel's perspective currently, as they're there in unbelief at the moment, um, they, um, um, they are planning on this being a temple, not just for Israel, but for the world. And so what... Um, how that will look when they begin to once again bring sacrifices and such in there. Uh, we'll, we'll see what that looks like. Um, I, I happen to believe that the church will be gone before this happens, but, um, but those who are there, um, we'll see how that will ultimately look, what that will look like, how that will unfold when the temple is built. But the idea that the temple will be built, to me, biblically speaking, is an absolutely foregone conclusion. Uh, I have zero doubt whatsoever. I have absolute, complete, total, confidence and faith that there will be a third temple, because the Bible makes clear declarations that there will be some. Let's grab a sip real quick before I go further. Um, so, uh, and places uh, where we see that have to do with passages like, uh, I mentioned Matthew twenty four fifteen, the idea of the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place as spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Um, he is making reference, Jesus is making reference to these words that we just read here in Daniel, as well as um, the other reference uh, references in uh, later on in the book uh, as well that have to do with this. Um, now, the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, there are sometimes um, uh, uh, people push back on that idea, saying that it's already happened. Uh, some will point to 165 B.C., uh, when Antiochus Epiphanes went into the temple, slaughtered a pig on the altar, set up a statue to Saturn uh, in the holy place, and they will say, well, that's when that was fulfilled. Well, the problem with that is that it 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 may have happened after the time of Daniel, but it happened before the time Jesus spoke about it in the future tense. So that can't be, because Jesus was still talking about it coming in the days ahead, 
So that didn't count. It certainly could be a type or, you know, an example of what that will look like when it happens. But that one doesn't qualify because Jesus still spoke about it being yet future. Um, if you have trouble believing what Jesus had to say, then believe me, you have bigger problems than when the when the abomination of desolation is going to happen. Uh, but uh, the other event that is generally pointed to as being the fulfillment of Daniel's words and even Jesus' words is in 70 AD when Titus Vespasian with the two Roman legions, the second and seventh Roman legion, I think, came in and sacked Jerusalem. Uh, just the city came down. The temple was was uh, caught on fire. There's varying stories as to how that happened. But the, the temple catches fire. The gold within the, um, uh, within the temple begins to sort of melt and seep within the, the various stones of the temple. Titus Vespasian orders, uh, I think he ordered it, but in any case, the soldiers began to push the blocks off of one another so they could get the gold and everything out from there. And this ultimately fulfills, even as Jesus said in, again, Matthew 24, where he talks about not one stone would be left upon another. Uh, and so, um, that took place. And so the question is, does that satisfy Daniel's prophecy? Well, no, because there was no abomination of desolation set up in the holy place. Uh, there was no, um, uh, the other accompanying elements with it. Uh, for example, it's not just Daniel, but actually Paul and John both prophesy about that temple. Uh, Paul prophesies about in Second Thessalonians 2, where the son of perdition, the man of sin, will go into the temple of God and declare himself to be God and demand to be worshipped of all that is called God. Well, that didn't happen in 70 AD. Um, the Roman legions came in, and sometimes people point to their shields with the Roman standards and that kind of thing entering in, and that qualified. No, it doesn't qualify. Um, uh, you know, John, for example, goes even further and gives us uh, an additional element in there uh, where he describes how there's going to be this statue that the false prophet or second beast, as he's referred to in, in Revelation 13, uh, he will call for a, a statue to be built. The people of the world will construct this thing. He will breathe life into it, and it will require people to worship the first beast or the one we call Antichrist. In concert with that is the idea that there will also be required uh, the taking of a mark on the right hand or forehead, without which you cannot buy or sell, and it also is in, is uh, it is connected with the idea of worshiping uh, the beast or the Antichrist. And so none of those things have happened. Now, if you are prone to spiritualizing the text, it would not be hard to say, okay, well, that happened under Titus Vespasian. However, I don't think it's a good idea to be prone to spiritualizing the text. I think it's always a better idea wherever possible, unless there is absolutely no doubt that the passage is intended to be taken metaphorically or allegorically, then if unless that is absolutely abundantly clearly present, you should always take the text at face value first, unless there's a good reason not to. Uh, and there is no good reason not to assume that when Daniel spoke about it, when Jesus spoke about it, when Paul spoke about it, when John spoke about it, that this abomination of desolation would be something standing in the holy place, would require the worship of the uh, of the one to whom this image is created for. Uh, there will be a mark of the beast that you will not be able to buy or sell. It will be required by every, uh, by the Antichrist of everybody in the world. Um, it, it's it's just there's it's a huge thing that is extremely well spelled out. Um, it's not spoken of in language that requires to be taken metaphorically or allegorically. It just, it speaks straightforwardly. And it also fits within a period of time that Daniel expected to be taken as a literal period of time, a 70th week. There are 490 years in view here in these 77s, and 483 of those years have passed already 
up leading up to the coming of Messiah, as he says here in, in, in Daniel 9, uh, which means there is one remaining week that by the description appears to be separated from the other, uh, the other uh, uh, 69 weeks. And so that one is yet to come, and it will be marked by the things we've just spoken of. We'll know we're in that period of time when those things come to pass. A peace covenant will be signed with the many, again, at least including Israel and potentially uh, including other nations, likely, if any, uh, the, the Arab nations around them, the Muslim nations, and the events that take place in the midst of that are spoken of again in, in, in Daniel 9.27, and I would argue make up the bulk of Revelation chapters 6 through 19. And so some, and that actually is going to help us kind of segue into another one of these questions that comes up here as well. And I'm so glad you're asking these questions, Seamus, because A, it gives me a chance to talk about a subject I'd like to talk about. But secondly, it helps uh, give me an opportunity to what I hope will be provide some clarity on these ideas and answer some of these questions very directly. So, um, so the idea that there will be a temple, clearly there will be. The excitement around um, things like the red heifer showing up, where uh, uh, a number of red heifers have, have, have emerged and they are being inspected and all this kind of thing, they, they, they won't be of any use until a temple is built. Now, technically, a temple could be a, uh, you know, a, a, a stone and mortar uh, structure, or if I understand correctly, it could very well be a, a temporary structure, but it is set apart and sanctified for this. So um, it, it could be something that can be constructed, like a, a solid stone structure, like the original temple, temples, or it could be like the tabernacle in the wilderness. Um, and it becomes just the place, an elaborate tent system that is uh, set apart as being this temple area. I don't know. I'm I'm expecting there to be an actual physical structure built, the temple. But but um, but anyway, it could be it could just be the tent. But anyway, when we see the red heifer, it is uh, the the ashes of the red heifer are required in various purification elements of this temple when it ultimately will come to be. So the fact that it shows up on the scene ought to prod a certain level of anticipation as we realize the need for these things and how rare it is when they appear. And so did God allow one to sort of show up here because we're on the cusp? Or maybe, as I would suspect for the moment, it may very well be that this thing appeared on the scene because God always wants to be on the forefront of our minds how quickly we can find ourselves moving into that period of time. So um, that is that is my uh, thinking on that. Now, um, as far as the current nation Israel being the children of Israel referred to, um, in the scripture as being in the land when these things ultimately come to be, uh, Seamus raises an interesting question. The idea of, of there being, is there one return or is there two returns? Do they return in unbelief or do they return in belief? Well, I think the scriptures do speak to this idea. Uh, Ezekiel 37, for example, speaks about uh, the the reviving of the of the bones, you know, the dry bones coming back to life and this kind of thing. And throughout chapter 37, there is discussion about the people coming back to life and coming back, you know, to the land. And then there's also mention of them being there in belief rather than unbelief. My sense is that uh, Ezekiel 37 is actually sort of a, uh, there's a dual fulfillment involved in that. There is the bringing back of the nation albeit in unbelief to begin with, but they will ultimately be called from the nations around the world in belief at one point. And here's how, uh, here's, here's an element I want to add to this. In Revelation, I just mentioned Revelation 6 through 19. In Revelation chapter 12, there is mention of the rise of Antichrist. There is also the woman with the sun, moon, and stars 
She is clearly representative of Israel. We know this because this same imagery is used uh, is is uh, is is seen in a dream by Joseph in in uh, Genesis thirty seven, and the interpretation of this image is given in in uh, Genesis thirty seven by Joseph's father Jacob, and he refers to this as referring to he his wife and his brothers, Israel. And so when the woman with the sun, moon, and stars in Revelation chapter 12 appears, we don't have to wonder what that's referring to. We know what that's referring to because that same imagery is used previously. Uh, And of course, it makes sense that it would be Israel because it is Israel that is in view from primarily in view from chapter 6 through 19 until the return of Christ. We don't see the church mentioned during that period of time anywhere. We don't see, um, uh, what we do see is, is, and in particular, this is where I really want to get to, in chapter 12, we see the persecution, we see the judgments of God on the world, but we also see in particular focus the persecution of Israel by the dragon ultimately through the person uh, of Antichrist and such, but it is the dragon who is ultimately persecuting and chasing uh, the woman out into, uh, out into the, the wilderness like a flood after her offspring is uh, whisked up into heaven, uh, that, that man-child being uh, representing Christ or being a, um, speaking of Christ. And then Israel, who gives birth to Messiah, uh, ultimately is chased off into the wilderness under the persecution of the Antichrist. So... <coughs> Israel, however, at the end, in, ch- in chapter 19, when Christ returns, uh, we see mention of this in places like Zechariah. We see mention of it. I, th- I think this is likely what Paul has in view in, in uh, Romans chapter 11, verse um, 25, 26, where he talks about all Israel being saved once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. Um, this period of time, at the end of the 70th week, when Christ returns, all of Israel will look upon him whom they've pierced, and they will mourn like one mourns for an only son, again, Zechariah. And ultimately, Israel will come into belief. Now, not all of Israel, not every Jew that may be alive uh, during that time, but a remnant, as is spoken of uh, in some of the minor prophets, not the least of which in Zechariah chapter 13. There's mention of the remnant going into the millennium. But Israel will come in belief and enter into the millennium during that period of time. So how can there—and and this is what I believe Jesus is referring to when he speaks about the coming of the Son of Man in, in Matthew 24, when he talks about—and um, uh, and we'll turn to Matthew 24, I'll read the passage here— um, Here we go. In uh, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man uh, will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds from heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds uh, from one end of heaven to the other. And then he goes on into verse 32, where he talks about what often we see as a reference to Israel, the idea of the fig tree um, and this kind of thing. But notice he speaks about this being at the end of this time of tribulation. He sends his angels forth and he called the elect from the four corners of the earth, from all from under heaven. At that point, Israel enters into belief and they then enter into the millennial kingdom as Christ has returned, ultimately to vanquish his enemies, to put down the Antichrist, the false prophet, all of those who fight with them are killed in that moment. And then ultimately the white throne judgment and that kind of thing. Uh, uh, the Bema seat, I should say. And then uh, after that comes the millennium. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. After that is... Uh, 
the Bema Seat comes after. That's the final judgment. I was thinking more of the um, separating of the sheep and the goats as he talks about Matthew 25. Um, those who ultimately will enter the millennium, those who will not, and be separated and await their final judgment in that period of time. So the idea here now is that Israel does enter the land in unbelief to begin with, and Paul talks about them being in unbelief uh, even in his time. But of course, after they're dispersed and they come back in the land, they're still in unbelief. But there will come a time when they will believe, when they look upon the Son of God, when he comes and he returns, they recognize him as the Messiah whom they've pierced, and they will put their belief and their trust, their faith in him. So that being said, sorry about the the misspeak there on the Bema seat and that kind of thing. That comes after the uh, millennial kingdom and the final judgment um, uh, before the new heavens and new earth and and eternity begins. Uh, So now, as far as your concern, um, which is a valid one, about... um, Satan's potential to create counterfeit situations that can mislead people. That is an important concern. Uh, I would say, though, that because there is sufficient reason, and I I think I've laid out some of that, obviously a a larger case can be made, but I think at least in the short time we've been doing this uh, today, we've given enough reason to to, um, lay out a reasonable explanation for these things. We don't neglect to talk about these things because the enemy does try to deceive, but rather instead we just use good, solid biblical exposition to make our case. And if it in fact is solidly consistent scripturally, if it bears itself out well, then we teach it as what the scriptures teach with the intent uh, that the kind of encouragement and such that is so often attached to these discussions in scripture, for example, when... uh, uh, when Paul talks about the rapture in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, uh, the end of that, and then again in chapter 5, he goes on and talks about how these things are intended to be an encouragement to those who are living under persecution and that, knowing that the day is coming when Jesus will return and establish, first off, he'll come and get his bride, but then, of course, he will establish that kingdom as promised. Um, the promise of the millennial kingdom was one that Israel held to, even in the times of the apostles, as they watched Jesus ascend into heaven right before he left them. They asked, will you then restore the kingdom to Israel? And uh, that's, uh, that's our new puppy, Travis, by the way. Um, so, um, so we talk about these things because the Bible puts these things very prominently in Scripture, that we might talk about them, that we might learn about them. And I would, again, suggest that it's so that we might be encouraged by them. So uh, I do, uh, do hope that that is, is what is gained from our times when we do talk about these things and when we spend a significant amount of time uh, trying to understand what these passages are talking about. It is really ultimately so that we might know what the scriptures lay out as far as the scenario in the last days. And as we see these things unfolding, that we might, uh, similarly to when Jesus told the uh, <coughs> told Israel, when you see these things coming to pass, look up for your redemption draws near. Well, I would suggest for the church, when we see these things happening, uh, we, we should be looking up too, because the Lord coming for his bride uh, is, is sooner than it ever was, right? So we recognize that, that it's drawing nearer and nearer and nearer. So, uh, so that being said, I think that, I think that I hit all the highlights here. Um, so I'll just leave it there for now. Um, but uh, if you have any questions or thoughts or anything on this, uh, or anything for that matter, I'll do my best to try and give it a shot and answer it uh, if, uh, if I can. And um, that being said, I do appreciate uh, Seamus and, and uh, Taylor for the questions and comments that you shared here as well. Uh, I do um, 
I do so look forward to the opportunity to, to talk about eschatology. And of course, I look forward to the opportunity to speak to issues and questions and things that rise from those who watch and listen. I, I really do appreciate that you do take time to uh, to, to watch and to listen. Uh, I find it just wonderfully shocking and surprising, but definitely a wonderful uh, privilege to be able to just share some of these things. And if they can be of any use to you, I'm just very, very thankful to know that. So thanks again for reaching out with your comments, questions, and, and emails and that kind of thing. And certainly your encouragements as well. That's always appreciated too. So Father, we thank you and praise you. You are so very, very good to us. You've set us free and had our sins lifted away, cast as far as east is from the west, buried in the deepest sea all because of what Jesus took upon himself at the cross, having taken all of our sin, past, present, and future, and having died for it, was buried and rose again the third day, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. We're so thankful for what you have done for us. We thank you that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And with that beautiful blessing and privilege of being brought into your family by your grace, we just thank you that that also has eternal, far-reaching implications. It brings us hope in this day for the day that will come when Jesus will come and snatch his bride away. When we return with him, even after that, to establish that kingdom, to rule and reign with him in the kingdom that he comes to establish, uh, to serve and to be a blessing and to worship in that millennial kingdom, and then even beyond that, to know that there's a new heavens and a new earth coming and we'll spend eternity with you, our God in heaven. And we thank you so much for this. Father, we bless you, how, how, how absolutely filled with gratitude we are that you have been so kind to us. And we just pray that in the days to come that we would look up knowing that our, uh, our calling away to meet our bridegroom in the air is coming soon, that the day when you're going to wrap up human history and you will answer that prayer that Jesus himself taught us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, how we long for it to be so. So thank you, Father. We love you and ask all of this with great hope and anticipation in the great and awesome name of Jesus. Amen. Will the Lord bless and keep you, make his face to shine upon you. I'll be gracious to you and give you peace forever. And so until next time, God bless you, and we'll catch up with you soon.